I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2004. Enjoy. I think you will find uh, the next few minutes inspirational as we speak with Barbara J. Elliott, who is the author of a book called Street Saints, Renewing America's Cities. In this book, Barbara Elliott talks about some very impressive people, people not impressive because they're famous or wealthy, but uh, impressive people because of their uh, commitment to their own faith and their commitment to the idea of trying to make the world a better place. And in particular, working very hard in uh, some of the most difficult of environments, uh, the heart of some of our largest cities, and uh, doing uh, this important work where it is most needed and where it's often the most difficult to accomplish. Uh, Barbara J. Uh, Elliott is the founder of the Center for Renewal uh, in Houston, Texas, which uh, works with faith-based organizations, uh, particularly those that work in the uh, inner city. A former international correspondent for uh, PBS and the uh, author of a previous book called Candles Behind the Walls, Heroes of the Peaceful Revolution that Shattered communism, and a number of uh, articles as well. Barbara J. Elliott, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you very much. I guess part of what inspired the writing of this book is the fact that so much important work is being done uh, in a number of different fields uh, by faith-based organizations. And uh, it's probably not uh, at all an entirely new phenomenon, but maybe it's taking shape in some different ways or, or being carried out maybe in some ways that are maybe unique to our current day? When I first got into this field, it really was uh, looking at it from both a personal perspective and also a historical perspective. Um, from a personal perspective, I had had the opportunity to serve uh, when I was living over in Germany, and I was, I'd been a reporter for PBS, um, and about the time that the Berlin Wall was beginning to, to crumble, and I just had a, a clear sense that the refugees who were fleeing from the eastern countries into the West needed somebody to help them transition into a life in Western Europe, which is where I was. Uh, so with one friend, I launched a small private initiative just to go to those that were within driving distance of where we lived in, in Germany. And in, over the course of the next year and a half, I had an opportunity to just kind of love them through the transition. Uh, we helped them get jobs. We helped them find a place to live. We tutored their kids. Uh, we helped them find doctors when they needed them. And it was just a remarkable experience of really discovering the joy that comes in serving. Um, when I came back to the United States about, uh, I guess, nine years ago now, I, I had a sense that there was something remarkable taking place in, in America uh, in the years that I had been gone. Much had changed in this country, but one thing that became clear with a little bit of, of work that I began doing um, was that there are people who are agents of renewal in our cities. Uh, these are the people that I call street saints. These are the people who are going into prisons and are changing the hearts of prisoners uh, to a sufficient degree that they really don't commit crimes again. They are not going back into prison in some of these programs. These are the people who are walking into um, grade schools in some of our troubled neighborhoods and are mentoring at-risk kids. Some of them may have parents in prison or have a parent who's an addict. And just by the presence of a mentor who shows up every week to love this child, they can truly transform not only their emotional stability and their psychological stability, but also their academic achievement. 
Um, these are the people who are helping um, immigrants learn entrepreneurial skills to support themselves when they come here uh, and to teach them English. These are the people who are helping families make the transition from welfare into productive work and are mentoring through that, through that uh, transitional stretch of their life. And the common thread, I guess, with all of these people is that they are ordinary folks who are willing to take their goodwill and apply it to their neighbors in a way that truly transforms lives. They're willing to go where there is pain and to be a presence of love. Mm. You just touched on one of my favorite moments in the book, which is in your introduction when you say a street saint is someone who is willing to go where there is pain and suffering and to be a presence of healing uh, with love. I guess uh, another important point which you just made is uh, when you called many of these people ordinary people, because it's probably important for us to uh, remind everybody listening that uh, this is an opportunity that is, is not reserved for the exceptionally gifted or for the exceptionally courageous this is something that uh, is, is an opportunity for uh, the most ordinary of citizens to, uh, to undertake. Absolutely so. Um, one of the programs that I've, I've discovered that's really doing a good job at this is called Kids Hope USA. It started in Michigan um, about 10 years ago, and um, they've been linking one public elementary school with one church um, insofar as the church provides mentors who are motivated simply to go and love kids. Um, and they come up with a team of at least 10, and they then go into the school to mentor at-risk youth, usually in the first or second grade, uh, that the school is identified. The teachers know which of their kids are in trouble, and they also know that the children who don't learn to read by the end of the second grade are most likely going to have trouble all the rest of their lives, and are, of course, a lot more likely to drop out. So the churches are providing simply people to go and be a presence of love. Their job is not to go in and to <laughs> take content of faith so much as it is to simply go and love a child. And the transforming power of this relationship is really what stabilizes the, the children. Anybody can do this. Um, this program has been replicated now in, I believe, 240 different locations. Um, it has absolutely uh, transformed the lives of these kids. They've done uh, actually a study to follow up on a number of them and discovered that 95% of them are producing work at the end of the first year that is rated as, as good or excellent by their teachers. And it's a, it's a remarkable thing because what happens when a, a mentor, which can be truly anybody, uh, when they develop this relationship with a child, pretty soon it develops into a relationship with a parent because they want to know who is this having this profound effect on my child. And from that, oftentimes, comes an opportunity to, to help meet a need that the parent might have. Maybe their car isn't reliable to get them to work, or maybe they're in need of medical attention. There are all kinds of things, and it's a very natural way to be able to extend a hand in goodwill to somebody who you would not have known otherwise. Mm. That touches on something else, uh, which you, I think, explore beautifully in the introduction, that of the whole matter of invisibility. You say that... Uh, uh, you invite the reader to, into a world so hidden that it is almost invisible. Uh, that is, that so much of this suffering that we are talking about uh, are all but uh, invisible. Depending on where you live or where you drive or where you choose to look, uh, people can very easily live out all of their lives uh, almost completely unaware of, of, of the needs of, of, of some of these uh, less fortunate people. You know, it's a world that I really didn't know very much about um, until I deliberately sought out uh, the people who are the street saints among us. I was really unaware of what goes on in a lot of inner-city schools. I'd never been in a prison to visit it. 
Um, I'd never been to some of the storefront churches. I'd never been in a drug treatment program where heroin addicts walk in off the street high. I mean, this is just a side of life that I did not know. Um, and if I had not deliberately sought them out in any of the cities that I, I had lived in or that I visited since, I would not have crossed paths. Our children don't go to the same schools. We don't attend to the same churches. We don't shop in the same places. You know, it's just a whole different... That's the area of town you go by on, on the freeway that, that doesn't take you in unless, unless you seek them out. And, and the remarkable thing is there is so much beauty in the relationships that are being built there. Um, I've found these people absolutely inspiring. The leaders of these organizations are, are really quite remarkable. Um, they show courage. Um, you have, you're in Milwaukee. Uh, right? Yes. And you have one of them uh, one of them right there in your city, Cordelia Taylor. Yes. I don't know if you've encountered her, but uh, the family house that she has is one of these examples. Um, she's just a remarkably courageous lady. Uh, she grew up in, a sow- in the South at a time that uh, racial prejudice was very strong, and uh, her father was actually uh, killed. Um, she moved to Milwaukee into an area that was poor and worked her way out of that. She raised seven children, uh, got a degree in nursing, moved out to the suburbs, had a life that was all the things that she had hoped it could be, um, but she moved back into the poor neighborhood that she had left and took over a house where she had lived before, renovated it one room at a time, working a second job just to pay for groceries, and turned this house into a home for elderly people, many of them African-American, as she is, elderly people, so they have a place to live out their waning years in dignity and with love. Um, what was one house became two and then three. She's bought adjacent houses, so now she has almost an entire city block. Now, the kind of courage that it took is kind of remarkable, first of all, to just go and do it. But second of all, she was in a neighborhood where they were still having drug wars. Uh, she had two competing gangs who were zinging bullets over the backyard, over the, the heads of her patients, which was terrifying. So she walks out to them and says, hey, <laughs> these are my people out here. One of them pulls a gun on her. And she looks at him and says, go ahead and shoot. You'll just get me to heaven faster than I was planning on going. <laughs> well, you know, the guy looks at her, looks at the gun, puts it down, and says, you can have this neighborhood lady. It was just her moral courage, really, that faced him down and has created an island of peace um, and hope in a neighborhood that was otherwise uh, a lot less pleasant. Hmm. We're speaking with Barbara J. Elliott. Her book is called Street Saints, Renewing America's Cities. One of the points which you make is that there are certain things that government does well, and then there are other things that are best left to individuals. And, of course, that becomes a rather complicated question when we're talking about, for instance, uh, helping the poor among us. Uh, what do you think is the balancing act there uh, between what, uh, what the government can do and should do versus what you think uh, is, is, is better done by others, uh, f- such as faith-based organizations? Senator Dan Coates from Indiana, who is now the ambassador to Germany, uh, wrote the introduction, the foreword um, to Street Saints. And he remembers an encounter that he had when he was a senator. He went to a hearing in uh, Georgia, and they'd been talking about various uh, failed solutions to try to alleviate poverty. And it was a, a black pastor who stood up in the middle of that hearing and said, Senator, there are things that the government can do, but you can't touch the hearts and the minds of people. You can't love them, and you can't change them. And it was, a, it was a deciding moment, a formative moment for then Senator Coates, who realized that the attempts to move families in Chicago, 
for example, and he'd been a part of that as a, as a youngster just getting out of college, uh, to move them into housing projects had overlooked the fact that they had roots in a neighborhood that was so dramatically changed afterward that it was unlivable. And he began to understand that there are certain things that the government can do very well, um, but there are other things that it cannot. Government cannot build relationships. Government cannot change the hearts of people. The government cannot inculcate virtue into the human soul. It can't change motivation. Those are things that faith-based groups can do and have been doing for a long time. There's actually a long history of these organizations uh, that goes back really to the founding of the country. Um, from the time that America was populated by colonies, there were people who moved here who had a very strong sense of, of their moral responsibility for their neighbors. It was the most natural thing for someone to um, take in a child who'd been left behind by a family whose, whose parents had died. Um, it was a very natural thing to rebuild a barn if somebody's had burned down. Uh, these kinds of voluntary actions on behalf of neighbors grew into little voluntary associations that de Tocqueville discovered here when he came in the 1830s. And he marveled at that. It, was, it had become almost a defining characteristic of America in a way that was very... Uh, contrasted to what he had known in Europe. And I can validate that it is still today very much a different situation than there is in Europe. This idea of bonding together with our local neighbors to take care of people whose names we know and to give them our goodwill and sometimes our time and our talent and, and our treasure, all three of those, that's been a part of who we were in America to the extent that we we focused our energies in this way. We had a flourishing civil society in America. That has changed um, since about the 1960s. We have put a great deal of our energy um, into um, government institutions and also into large social institutions. And the resulting shift, which was intended to be more efficient, actually resulted in a, a shriveling of what we call the mediating institutions. Uh, Robert Putnam writes about this in his book, Bowling Alone and the fact that people are volunteering a lot less in those kinds of institutions. Uh, it's really plummeted pretty radically since the 60s and the 70s and the 80s even further. These faith-based organizations today are, in a sense, re-knitting these face-to-face -face relationships. They are building up civil society, re-knitting the tattered fabric of civil society in a way that really is making America's soul strong. And to the extent that the government takes care of the things that it should the counterpart of that is, th is that the private sector must do the things that only it can do well. Hmm. Ambassador Coates, uh, in his foreword, uh, poses a very interesting question, which is how can we creatively but not intrusively strengthen faith-based organizations working at the grassroots levels in our cities? That's a very interesting uh, idea of trying to help them, strengthen them, assist them, and, and yet in not in a way that gets in their way? There are a number of attempts that have been uh, undertaken by um, the Bush administration. Um, one of them was the creation of the Compassion Capital Fund. Uh, by government standards, a relatively small amount of money, but nevertheless, the first year they gave about $30 million. The second year, again, about that, that amount, plus a little bit more for research as well. Um, the idea was to simply build up the capacity of these providers. It was not money given to support their programs. It was to help them grow as institutions, uh, to help them be able to track their uh, results in a more professional way um, in order to 
qualify for whatever kind of funding would be appropriate to their mission. That's the kind of thing that both the government can do and that also private foundations can do, um, that they can help these organizations grow up to be responsible, well-run nonprofits that can uh, have a management structure that works to, to track their results and to focus on their mission in such a way that they actually change lives. Um, it is a balancing act because the government may not fund the faith content of what faith-based groups do, and anyone who has applied for government funding is asked to respect that line, a very clear line. The faith content may not be funded. The secular part of what faith-based groups uh, do may be funded. So the accompanying question that I ask is then, who's going to take care of the faith content of these organizations? And my answer has been that the private sector needs to step up. Um, part of the reason I wrote a companion volume to Street Saints is to make that case to the philanthropic community. Um, the second book that I wrote is called Equipping the Saints, a Guide to Giving to Faith-Based Organizations. And it's simply there to lay out the parameters for people who would like to give intelligently to faith-based groups but don't really know how to evaluate them or what to look for. So based on the experience of private donors, um, there are case studies and also actual checklists of what to look for based on their experience and the kind of uh, grants that they have done that have both built capacity and also given to their programs. Hmm. One of the interesting decisions you make in your book is to uh, proceed through... Uh, to, to examine uh, all of this in, 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 in several different ways. First, by uh, introducing us to some, some terrific individuals who are doing this work, then stepping back to another level and, uh, and introducing us to, to various programs, and then finally taking a still bigger uh, view and, and looking at some different cities around the country to explore uh, the way in which uh, great things have been accomplished in, towards, the, towards the goal of, of, of helping people. Um, what inspired you to uh, construct the book in this, in this really interesting way? You know, it was a difficult thing to sort out more than 300 interviews and to put it in, in any kind of way that made it intelligible. But as soon as I began to step back and look at what I had, I think visually. Um, I've also studied art, you know, kind of in my sidelines, and I thought, you know, what, what is this? We're starting with close-ups. We're going back to a middle range, and it occurred to me that this was almost it, like you would make a film. You start with a close-up on a person's face, you back up, and then you can see the entire person, then you can back up to see the, the street that they're walking in, then you can see the entire city. Well, in this case, I backed it up even one level beyond and put it into the historical and also theological context. But it seemed to make sense to make the case that what we're talking about when we look at these street saints, we're looking at individual people. Um, and some of them are, are just remarkably courageous and inspirational people. But what they're doing also sometimes is, is the result of a program that has actually been road tested and has quantifiable results. Um, and I've also put those in. I've, I've done the work to figure out which of them have actual sociological studies that have been done, and I've pulled out the results of that and their best practices to try to make this uh, a primer, uh, if you will, something that people can use if they'd like to go and do likewise. But it seems to make sense to also look at where this, this approach of utilizing the faith sector has actually been successful on a broader scale. So after looking at the programs uh, dealing with at-risk kids, for example, or prison-related programs and social entrepreneurs, I stepped back and looked at several cities where there is actually a concerted strategy that embraces an entire city in such a way that they are beginning to 
utilize the different partners in the civic sector in combination with people in the faith sector for each of them to do what is appropriate to their mission. I'll give you an example. Uh, Fresno was, in 1983, rated the least livable American city. And this is not exactly a, uh, you know, an award you'd like to hang up on your <laughs> Chamber of Commerce wall. Um, and shortly after that, things actually got worse. They had a demographic wind shear of um, all kinds of refugees that were coming from a variety of countries. The schools were flooded with about 90 languages. There were uh, warring gangs, lots of teenage gangs. Uh, Fresno had the highest uh, crime rate um, if in every category except one for the state of California. Auto thefts were rampant. Murder was rampant. And a few of the city leaders got together and said, we have to do something. Um, what they launched, they called the No Name Fellowship, um, and it, they simply took a variety of people who were civic leaders, the mayor, the chief of police, a number of the, the pastors, eventually um, the superintendent of schools, a whole variety of leaders went together to, to come up with a solution. They rode in the um, patrol cars with the police on the, on the night shift just to see what went on in the city. They came back with blood on their clothes from kids who had died in their arms, and it was just a it galvanized a response in them just out of this desperation. But they focused the energies of the faith sector and also the civic partners together on a couple of the apartment complexes that were particularly crime-ridden. Churches took over one apartment that was then given to them by the apartment owners and put people in there who lived there who would then begin to work with the troubled youth to be a presence of peace, to be a place of refuge if someone was fleeing, battering, or shooting. At the same time, the police stepped up the patrol around those areas. They cracked down on the drug deals. And in the course of a year, they were able to drop the crime rate by about between 65 and 70 percent. Now, that's a classic example of a cooperation of the faith sector doing what it could, i.e., providing people of goodwill to intervene and to change the hearts and the lives. But the public sector, i.e., the police, did what they were supposed to do, which is provide for the order and for the defense of those who were innocent. And the two working together actually had a profound effect. Hmm. That's the kind of strategy that, that I think perhaps we can look at as a model where each sector does what it is best tasked to do, but they do it in cooperation with each other. Hmm. Very good. Uh, through the course of this book, we, of course, are, are meeting a lot of strangers, and uh, we also come across some familiar names. At, at one intriguing point in the book, uh, you uh, talk about the Old Testament figure of Nehemiah and call him one of the very first street saints and draw a parallel to much of what he did to uh, some of the work of those that are uh, profiled in, in this book. You also uh, talk at a couple of different points about uh, the very familiar figure of Mother Teresa. And uh, you, you quote her as saying something that I had not ever heard before. She called herself apparently a pencil in God's hands. Um, what would be your summary of what she meant by that and what that picture tells us about uh, all of these street saints that you talk about? Mother Teresa is a remarkable figure. I had the, uh, the pleasure and the honor of, of meeting her in 1981, um, and I can tell you the story of that. But, but let me respond to your question on the pencil in God's hand. She gave herself completely and yielded her will and simply said, do with me as you will, send me where you will have me go, let me know you, what you want me to do. Um, and she made a, a promise to him that she would deny him 
nothing. And when the call came, the call within a call, as, as she put it, she had already become a nun. She was in India, but she was teaching um, at, a, at a convent. And the call within a call was to go and to live among the poorest of the poor, um, which meant that she would leave the convent and simply live on whatever was available there. And she was afraid. She, she says that in, in her, um, she had kept a prayer journal, which has now been come to light in the case of her canonization. But her yielding to God and simply saying, I will do what you will have me do, is, I think, the, what prompted the, the metaphor of being a pencil in God's hand. She simply said, write your story to people through my life. And she called it, in, in another place, a love letter to two people from God. She was simply willing to do what he asked her to do, and whatever story came from that would be his hmm. by using her. The book, again, is called Street Saints, Renewing America's Cities, uh, written by Barbara J. Elliott, and the book is published by the Templeton Foundation Press of Philadelphia. Barbara J. Elliott, I'm sorry? It's also available on Amazon.com, and it's also, we have information on www.streetsaints.com. Very good. Barbara Elliott, I enjoyed speaking with you today on The Morning Show, and I thank you so much. Thank you.